Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing, or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. Welcome to Write Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen. Today, my guest is Brenda Thompson. Brenda has a background in counselling and education and is a longtime professional in the graduate medical education space. For the last year or so, she's been working as a resident and fellow liaison, educating residents who are transitioning into practice about topics such as how to negotiate a physician's contract, how to prepare for the interview process, and how to form professional identity for the community, for patients and colleagues. Join the conversation to learn from Brenda about the role of the physician liaison, how she and her colleagues teach newly minted physicians to stand out from the crowd, establish networks, create relationships and negotiate contracts, how continuing education can educate established physicians about the business side of medicine and the need for health and well-being education for residents, fellows and beyond. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Hello and welcome. This is Right Medicine, and I'm your host, Alex Housen. Today, we're here with Brenda Thompson, a GME pundit and a longtime professional in the graduate medical education space. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, it's good to see you. Let's talk a little bit about your background first. Just learn a little bit from you about how you found your way into graduate medical education. Mm -hmm. So my background stems from counseling and then it stems from education. I started to work in secondary education and I found that that just wasn't my right audience. So I was here in Chicago and I worked with an employment agency expressing my interest to work for a college. And they had a position in the graduate medical education office and I went for an interview, and that's how it got started. So I started off uh, working with accreditation, working on accrediting uh, programs, uh, making sure that they were adhering to ACGME requirements. And then with that, um, I spanned a long career of moonlighting and programs and working with their accreditation, being a consultant and going throughout the country and working with different programs, just helping them to see any deficiencies that, that might be in their program that they might not be you know, privy to. Because sometimes you can be an expert at running certain aspects of the program. Everybody has mm-hmm. their own expertise. So that would be my main focus. And then for the last year, I've been working as what I like to call a resident and fellow liaison. And I'm working with educating the residents on transitioning into practice topics, such as how to negotiate a physician's contract, because they're often not taught that in residency. Also, how to work with interviewing the whole process, 
going over interviewing questions, kind of like a mock interview session, and really just mm -hmm. educating them on how to form their professional identity, their professional identity for the community, for their patients, for their colleagues, how to build those referrals and market their practice, et cetera. So my, my background is, is diverse, but it really focuses on educating with the residents and the fellows to become more successful in residency, but meet their goals post-residency. Is that focus on professional identity something that, you know, is that a new focus for residents and fellows? Or is that something that they've really always had to be kind of conscious about, but there hasn't really been a, a formal way of, of introducing them to those topics? Yes, I feel like there has always been an inkling that they needed to be aware of how their reputation was being preceded within their own program and also how they were attracting patients. So I can tell you from my experience, we hadn't had much didactics in teaching residents and fellows about how to form your own professional identity, what that means to you as a clinician, and how to market yourself. And people aren't necessarily experts in selling their services. So we have to teach them how to do that. And I really feel like maybe in the last three years that has really been an initiative within the GME community. And that's when I got started and actually ramping it up. And that's when I talk about it in my book, really kind of introduce it. And I've, I've done two didactics on that with residency programs, but I've actually been busier with CME for established physicians giving a CME lecture on that. That's what has been keeping me busy. So I feel that we have maybe missed out on that opportunity for so many years. So they become physicians and they're a little bit lost. And so now they need to have that knowledge when they are a physician. What kind of activity do you see in professional societies that kind of try to fill that space around professional identity and reputation? So what I see that we're doing in the community is attracting what's called the physician liaison partnership. And that is an expert who is going to help market a physician to other physicians in terms of physician referral. So that's how we're kind of forming our professional identity to our colleagues in medicine. And we're also going to help them market their practice and market their service. So we're going to help teach them all about social media and about search engine optimization because we want to make sure that that physician is attracting the correct, authentic patients so they can build a referral. It's, it's all about attracting authentic referrals and not just casting a wide net with referrals. So we will literally go and take them to different places, whether it is going to be at a professional association, whether it is going to be with meetings with other physicians and say, hi, this is who I am. These are my services. Can I start a partnership with you? And that's the biggest thing that I think is happening right now in terms of what associations and what the community is doing to help those residents start building a professional identity. And I can't stress it enough about networking that professional identity within healthcare, because especially if you're primary um, and especially if you're, you know, one of those specialties that are going to have a heavy referral, maybe some specialties are more so that don't need it, such as dermatology. But if you're going to be a graduating resident, you know, uh, you don't have necessarily a strong patient base that you had built already within residency. You don't want to be a fish in a big sea. So they're going to get you with a physician liaison and help to market you. 
That's fascinating. You know, in some of the work that I do, I talk to a lot of physicians and often in the programs that um, I talk to physicians about, you know, specialist referral is is mm-hmm. part of, you know, what we're kind of interested in exploring. And I hear again and again about the challenges that primary care providers and specialists have in establishing that referral process and the amount yeah. of work it takes to actually kind of create a network and and also the kind of defeatism that I sometimes hear from physicians about well you know it just takes such a lot of work and so they're kind of crossing their fingers and hoping it really does so I just think in terms of investment to really invest in your profession you're never necessarily taught how to sell your services and mm-hmm. how to sell yourself as a physician so I would recommend any resident or fellow to invest in your practice by investing in a professional who can do 90% of the work for you. You will have to be an active participant. Again, you might have to go to those associations, uh, you know, have some meet and greets, maybe pay for, you know, a primary care physician's uh, lunch, you know, have a lunch date and say, hi, this is who I am. These are the services I provide. Can I take you out to lunch to introduce myself to see if you have a good relationship? Um, but that's an investment. And I highly recommend doing that because if you have the time to do that, great, but you probably don't. So why don't I get an expert to do that for you and to help you understand what all that entails? Establishing relationships is absolutely key. Of course, as it is for anybody who's essentially running their own their own business. For sure, there's a lot of entrepreneurship. It seems like that's one of the things that has really shifted in medicine. It is, for sure, for sure. Yeah, entrepreneurship is not taught in medicine. Yeah, do you, you see that as something that's kind of changing in terms of the tone that's set for medical graduates? So what I see is changing is, you know, we're kind of moving away from the sole proprietor. Yeah. Of course, it used to be a time when physicians did not have to be linked up with, you know, another conglomerate. And so they were their own business. And so they had to market their own selves. However, now we're seeing the shift where you're going to be working within a large conglomerate. And what's happening is that physicians are relying on that employer. So let's just say, for example, Kaiser. Kaiser is huge nationwide. So if you're going to rely on Kaiser to do the marketing, they're going to market for all of their physicians and they might include you as the physician within all of their physicians. So they might say, hey, we have so-and-so as a primary care physician and you're going to be listed with all the other primary care physicians. So what you need is your own website. You cannot rely on just your employer's website. You have to do independent marketing. So get your own website so you can start building that email list so you can start making daily or maybe not daily, but so you can start having consistent communication through maybe an an email campaign with your patients so you can have an authentic relationship with them because, you know, Kaiser, for example, is not going to to build your specific referral base. They're not going to help you with that email campaign. You really need to do that on your own. And then you need to have a website for you, your practice, your services, and there's much more to it. Don't just have a website and list the page on the internet. You need a page for every specialty you do. So if you are a plastic surgeon, you would want for every service that you do. If you provide 
rhinoplasty, if you provide facelifts, if you provide breast augmentation, each of those services needs its own dedicated page with its own dedicated search engine optimization, which is basically uh, tag codes for the website. So when a person, when they type on Google, breast surgeon in Chicago or breast surgeon near me, you're going to have, you know, hundreds of pages. So you have to make sure that SEO, the search engine optimization, is tagged to you somehow. Mm-hmm. But you're not, as a physician, you're not an expert in marketing. You're not an expert in all of this SEO optimization. So why waste your time to try and study and learn that? Hire a professional to do that for you and to also help educate you on that process. So now I find it's all about not getting lost within your employer. It's about standing out from your other colleagues because you are in competition with those colleagues. So even though you all might work for, for the same department within Kaiser, you know that physicians are in competition to one another. So you've got to earn a living, and the only way you're going to do so is if you get noticed by the community And so you have to have that entrepreneurial spirit and really go and market for yourself and not just leave it to your employer. So that's the big thing that I'm seeing that has recently changed. And I would say it's been changed probably in the last five years or so. Mm -hmm. Since social media got really popular, you know, we have Instagram, everyone's making videos, everyone's going onto YouTube and providing their videos. And that's what patients want to see. They want to see before and afters. They really want to see a physician who is active So they are looking for someone that is standing out on their own. And if you don't do that, you're going to get lost. You're going to be a fish in the sea. And are there some specialties where this is more important than in others? Oh, for sure. I guess another way of asking that question is, are you seeing this entrepreneurial drive in some specialties compared with others? Oh, a lot. You can go on to social media for Instagram, even for Twitter, and you've got people posting, even on LinkedIn, you've got people posting their before and afters, especially in dermatology and surgery. But what is difficult, and I think who needs to do it uh, a lot better, are other departments such as, you know, radiology. Nobody wants to be bombarded with a bunch of anything that has to relate to, you know, uh, cancer or any more of the serious illnesses. It's more about the vanity. (laughs) But, you know, how are you going to become a successful physician if you're not marketing? So you have to be more tasteful in the way that you advertise, but you can still provide some before and afters. You can still provide other type of educational, informational videos or just pictures or posts, even newsletters or any type of educational content. So it doesn't have to be all about any type of oncology, you know, any type of urology, mm-hmm. you know, things that people may not want to see because it's graphic or just pleasing to the eye. But it's not all about vanity. So it really needs to to stand out and to reach the audience. So you have to really tag it to the specific location. But yes, it's it's really important for all of the specialties to do so, especially the newest doctors that are graduating because they really have to work hard to build up that social media presence. And it, that's what everyone's doing. These patients today, they're going on to the internet to yeah. Google a physician. So it's not like what we've seen in the past where they're waiting for a referral based on a family member or a friend who might have worked with you as a physician. It's all now on social media. 
So entrepreneurship, establishing networks, creating relationships, these are all things that residents and fellows face when they're transitioning into practice. What are some of the other challenges that you see residents and fellows facing in that transition period? Mm -hmm. So when you go into residency, you get a contract, but you don't negotiate it. The contract is absolute, and there is no room for negotiation. And unfortunately, the biggest mistake that graduating residents and fellows are making is that they assume you can't negotiate a physician's contract. That is not true. You can absolutely negotiate it, and you can negotiate anything that's in that contract, but they don't know what to negotiate. So they might take that contract as is and sign away on it. They don't know what their non-compete status is. They don't know how many miles that they can't work for a competitor. They don't know how many years they can't even work afterwards, you know, if they leave the job. They don't know um, the notice period. They don't know terms and conditions that could possibly get them fired. There's so much that they are unaware of that unfortunately hurts them. You can negotiate compensation. You can negotiate perks. You can negotiate anything that's going to help make you successful. So for example, you know, parking in certain cities is expensive. Right. Here in Chicago, you can pay $300 a month at a, at a parking spot. So, you know, especially if you're on call, if you're one of the specialties that will take nighttime, you don't want to drive in Chicago at night and park somewhere in a garage in Chicago. You really don't. And of course, I don't think I need to explain how dangerous Chicago is. So you have to make sure that you're going to have safety at your work. And can you get a parking spot? Can you get it close to where your specific office is, all of that can be negotiated. Um, For example, in San Francisco, it is extremely hard to find parking and it is extremely expensive. A lot of hospitals don't even have parking. So you can negotiate something else. Um, You can negotiate something, you know, stipend for uh, Uber, for example, and that might only be for on-call experiences. But you can negotiate many, many things that you're not privy to when you go into residency. So I just feel that the best educated consumer is going to be armed with the knowledge and transparency to make the best decision for their career. I think it's a mistake in the GME community to not be teaching residents, hey, this is a physician contract, this is what it all means, and this is what is typically negotiated, and this is what is typically negotiated for this specific area. And of course, if you move out of the location where you did a residency or fellowship, you would have to find what is market rate trends for that local area that you're going to be working in. So I always recommend to any resident or physician, work with a contract physician wherever you're looking to work at, because they are going to be armed with the hiring trends. And they know what is typically negotiated, and they can negotiate correctly to get you the best and fair and most just contract for you. Mm-hmm. So where do residents and fellows find contract physicians? It is actually a very popular discipline in, in law. So what they would have to do is Google physician contract in Dallas or physician contract in Chicago, wherever they may be interested in looking at. Mm -hmm. If they have referrals from other 
um, mentors, for example, I always recommend, like, if you know you want to stay at a place and you've got a mentor, ask them who they've worked with, because obviously it was successful for them because they took the position. So ask your mentors, hey, do you have a name of, of a lawyer who works with physician contracts that I can contact? If not, then Google. They do have set rates. Of course, they are a lawyer, but they also have bulk packages. So they know that you're going to be negotiating possibly at a couple of hospitals. So you can either do per hospital, which is usually about $300, or usually they have a package of three negotiations, and that's usually about $900 to $1,000. Mm-hmm. So that it is a cost, but again, it is an investment for you in your future. And so I'm kind of surprised that GME programs are not providing, or maybe I'm misunderstanding you. Are, are you saying that graduate medical education doesn't really provide the kind of information that graduates need in order to make these sorts of decisions. They're kind of leaving a little bit ill-equipped. Absolutely. It's not a requirement. So you've got to also understand that ACGME does require certain things, um, certain scholarly activity, for example. They require some wellness education, but this isn't anything that they require. So programs are going to fill their didactics with the necessaries that they need for clinicians. However, it is somewhat gaining a momentum and there might be some programs that are even using their own in-house recruiters to come in to a didactic session and teach them these things such as contract negotiation or you know securing employment and how that works the whole recruitment process when you're going for your full physician position but other than that like I worked for a hospital And I worked in the physician recruiting department, but it was a hybrid position between that department and the GME office. And the whole goal was for me to contact programs, go to them, and teach them all about contracts, teach them all about the interview process, because it did two things. It showed these residents and fellows all about the company and the name, so it's like name branding, so they can say, oh, you know what, this hospital obviously cares about us getting a fair and just, you know, working situation. So maybe we should be looking at opportunities with them. But then it it also does another thing too, where, you know, a lot of contracts, they do have a notice period, which basically means that any party can determine if it's not a right fit that they can leave. They just have to give the notice in the notice period, which is usually 90 days. So they're going and signing a contract, determining that, you know what, I don't like this or I don't feel like I got a fair contract. They get angry about the contract that they received because they hear about their friends getting better contracts because their friends knew to negotiate. Um, and so then they break the contract. They give the notice period that's required. They break the contract and they go somewhere else. That hurts the hospital. That hurts the community. It's not financially smart for any employer to not have a well-educated physician going in to their practice, it hurts the community when they leave. You know, hospitals, clinics, they make an investment to that physician that's coming on board. That money and that time that they had spent for that physician only to leave 90 days later. So there are some hospitals and clinics that are trying to get more education out there because we kind of have to do things differently to make sure the community is not being left without a physician. Right. So interesting. So you did mention wellness and uh, a requirement to have wellness education. What kind of education around health and well-being are residents and fellows exposed to in their in their training? So ACGME requires fatigue mitigation and strategic napping. 
That's it. <laughs> um, that's it. Uh, and for me to have a counseling background, I'm just floored that that's it. And the problem really stems from they're coming in from medical school already being traumatized. They're already being victim of some form of harassment. And now they're coming in and then they go through residency and they keep getting beat down, so to speak. And now we've got a real serious problem on our hand because we've got some physicians that aren't doing so well, but they're faking it until they make it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I don't think necessarily fatigue and strategic napping are the only types of education in terms of wellness and well-being that should be taught during didactics or taught at any time during residency. I think we need more robust curriculum with that. In my book, I have a chapter all about it because I really believe that we need to start teaching skills, giving uh, residents and, and hopefully even medical students, really, the tools on how to release all of the burdens that they are experiencing. And in the book, I do have a lot of statistics about the abuse that, that's happening in the learning environment, such as drug abuse, uh, mm. alcohol abuse, but even harassment, physical abuse, sexual harassment abuse. And the numbers are really high. The number is scary high. Uh, 50% of females in medical school have experienced a form of sexual harassment I believe it. during their time in medical school. Mm -hmm. And so now they're coming in to residency, nobody's taught them, this is what you do if you've been sexually harassed. Nobody's taught them those skills. And then nobody's taught them how to go through mitigation conflict resolution. So they sit there and, they, and they're quiet and they take it all in because they're, number one, they're probably scared. They don't feel that they have any sort of power or safety to make aware that they have been mistreated. And then that does something to you internally, emotionally, spiritually, and then, of course, physically. So we have to help them gain better strengths in terms of that whole aspect. What do you do when you've been harassed? What do you do when injustice has been done to you? We don't want them to internalize it because that's just going to be a pattern for them. And then they're going to burn out even faster. And then we're going to lose physicians in the workforce because they're going to leave. And there is a, there is a drain, right? <laughs> For sure. So in the book, I have a lot of information about different techniques and different restorations that they can utilize. Everyone's going to have their own best practice that works for them. But my goal in that book and the chapter is for residents and, and fellows to understand that they need some form of release, an emotional release, a spiritual release. Um, a mental release to unrelease all of the burdens that are happening with their residency and, you know, at home as well, because you're going to have burdens with personal responsibilities. So what works best for you? Maybe you don't know yet because you've never been given the opportunity to explore different means. So I have a couple of different examples. I talk about body somatic therapy, which I think has worked really well with physicians. It's a type of therapy in terms of physical touch. There are mm -hmm. some that don't involve physical touch, but are still a physical form of therapy. There's uh, eye movement therapy. Oh, EMDR? Yeah. So therefore, you're not being touched, but the facilitator is going to perform uh, therapeutic services based on your eye movements. And I know that's a, it's a question I get a lot from physicians who are like, oh, you know, like if it's not a massage, I don't want to be touched. And I'm like, no, no, you, it's okay. There's some that where you really don't have to be touched. But then there's also some other forms like, okay, if that's not something that you're comfortable with, there's a creative outlet. 
And I really stress highly that individuals look into that because if you're not comfortable with the typical Freudian therapy, like Freud, typical psychoanalysis, that's okay. Maybe you don't feel comfortable expressing what you have been through, but you can still get it out. There are other forms such as, and we know art therapy has become really popular. There's dance movement therapy that has become really popular. I have um, an example of what's called sandbox therapy. These are art therapies in which you don't even have to discuss, but your symbolic images and your symbolic movements have a meaning. And the facilitator who is working with you will know what those meanings are. And so you'll be able to work through the process and then they'll come up with a so-called treatment plan for you. And what I always recommend is get started with knowing how you best handle a crisis. And when I talk to residents about that, they say, I have no idea how. I don't even know how to. Right. I was just thinking that a lot of people <laughs> won't know that. They won't know how that. And I said, OK, like, well, what did you do in high school when you were you know, sad? What did you do when you were mad? And I'm surprised at how many people say, I just listened to music. And then I was able to cry if I needed to cry. And I say, okay, that's great because there's something that's called binarial beats. So if you're a type of person that has a cathartic release through music, perfect. There is a therapy out there for you and it's called binarial beats music. I'll discuss it in my book as well. So there is something for everyone. You just have to be aware of what it is. So one of the other topics I talk about when I do um, education to residents and physicians is these different examples of what is out there in terms of producing a cathartic release so you can unrelease those buried pent-up emotions. And so again, I talk about whether it's creative art therapies or somatic therapies, music therapy. They just have to be given the information. This is all new to them. It's more of a holistic approach. Um, I even have in there about, you know, because I've had a lot of residents that have taken an Ambien and then, you know, they come to work and they're all drowsy, but they really didn't have yeah. a choice so they wouldn't have been able to get to sleep. Well, the NIH has done a study saying that lemon balm tea mixed with valium root tea is stronger at producing sleep than an Ambien. And they're all shocked. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know that information. So I have that also in the book, but I have more of non-traditional remedies, solutions, mm-hmm practices for physicians. I don't recommend uh, medicine. I don't recommend any of that because I can't. I'm not a doctor. And my background is in counseling. My background happens to be in a form of transpersonal psychology. So I study different religions and cultures, um, and it took on more of an East-West approach. And now I go to different residencies, and I educate them on those approaches. But I just think the emotions that are buried and pent up is what is causing these breakdowns. And I know in healthcare, we like to call it fatigue. I like to call it a breakdown because that is in fact what it is. When you get burnt out, it's because you broke. So I don't like the whole resistance teaching because I don't, if you stretch something, it's going to break. So we can't keep building their tolerance. We have to help them release, have a cathartic release of, you know, what needs to be expelled from their emotions or their memory, etc., and help them create healthy patterns. So when they do get into a situation such as, especially in residency, when they're hushed a lot, I talk about depersonalization. My definition of fatigue is going through a depersonalization moment, a depersonalization experience. And in residency, you are hushed a lot. You don't necessarily have a voice. 
And that is really, um, I think that's really just uh, a disservice to our residents. And we don't want them recycling these bad habits because once they become on the floor and they start working with medical students and then they start working with residents, that's what they're going to model. And then it's a whole recycling pattern happening all over again. So we're never going to break this cycle. Brenda, I have so many questions. Yes. There's so much good stuff there. And mm-hmm. I do want to talk a little bit more about your book. But before we get there, so you've you've been talking about therapies that um, can be, you know, recommended for residents in terms of self-managing their own health and well-being. Is there much research on outcomes for residents, fellows, junior doctors using these therapies Mm -hmm. for health and well-being? Yes. And I have listed those studies, not all of them, of course, but I have listed studies. One thing that I always make note of, whether it's in the book or when I do my education um, presentations, I know doctors are scientific and I know they want to see the evidence. So I have on there the actual research studies. So if they're interested in it further, they can go and look up the reference. So I always list the reference. I always list the study. It's there for their knowledge. And if they're interested, hopefully they are and they look into it further because I really want Mm -hmm. them to understand that I know for them, they need to have everything proven by sight. But, you know, we can't see what's happening with our emotions. And so it's hard for some people to believe that a east west approach can be just as effective as a more traditional Western approach. So again, I'm not a doctor. I don't talk about prescriptions in my book. I talk about um, non-traditional means, but I do give the evidence base there to prove that it does work just as well. Just like the whole Ambien, I have the NIH study in my book. They can reference it if they're interested in it, and they can reference it if they just want to make sure that it is correct. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, there is there is higher and better things to do in terms of getting the mental and the physical and the emotional and the spiritual help that you need than just medicine. Right. And part of the evidence base for some of these modalities is also experiential, you know, but we discount that in the West. We really do. Or in Western approaches to kind of knowledge creation and Mm -hmm. knowledge building. You talked about burnout. And of course, some of the words that we use in this space, burnout, fatigue, breakdown, you're really kind of emphasizing that. How in sync Mm -hmm. are organizations like, so I know the American Medical Association, for instance, is doing a lot of work at the moment, has been doing a lot of work around burnout and resilience in particular over the last few years. They have a a couple of initiatives. How in sync Mm -hmm. is the AMA with the ACGME and other graduate medical education organizations they're all in sync because in my experience from what i have seen they all actually work together so when they move forward with such an initiative they're all on the same page because they've all worked together so when they moved forward with when acgme moved forward with this wellness initiative a couple years ago they communicate that with the other important associations so there is no competition there you know what i mean ama is not going to come out and say use our curriculum instead right they're all working cohesively together mm-hmm. no that's interesting and the other thing i wanted to ask a question about was you talked about resistance training and focusing mm-hmm. on resistance can you talk a little bit about that because i'm not sure i know what that is or where mm-hmm. it fits in the graduate curriculum you know i don't necessarily agree with the resistance training. I know that it is necessary because you do have to build up your tolerance 
for certain things. However, there's a point when you also have to learn how to expel what is going on in your mind, your body, your emotions, your spirit, etc. So, yes, it does make sense in certain specialties. Of course, you know, if you're working in ER, you're going to have to build up your tolerance to what you're seeing in ER. You're going to have to build up your tolerance to the fast-paced energy, to the horrific scenes that you might be experiencing. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. But the thing is, is that we're teaching that, relying on that. And I don't think we can just rely on building our tolerance up. Because at some point, the body is going to not be able to handle it. And we know that because that is fatigue. When you start having fatigue, that means your body is telling you, I can't go anymore can't handle it. Your mind, your mental capacity is saying, I've had enough. Now you're fatigued because I'm trying to get you to slow down and stop. So I don't like just the focus on resilience training. And I feel like that is the only type of education we're putting out there in terms of trying to better your well-being. So that's why I really focused a lot on this book. I've had a lot of people read this book before it was published, and they said, wow, this book is really, um, it's like a background of psychology and education. I'm like, great, because that's what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to really be about working with their wellness in terms of helping them achieve wellness through having a healthy mindset, spiritual set, emotional set. How do you do that? Well, that means you've got to do the work. Just building tolerance is not doing the work. You have to expel. And that's why I give several different modalities. So whatever works best for you, whatever you may be interested in, maybe you're interested in in writing. Uh, And that is actually one of my other backgrounds, because when I focused on transpersonal studies, I did a concentration in therapeutic creative writing. So maybe for some individuals who do need to get it out, they need to talk it out, but they don't feel comfortable. Because you got to remember, in healthcare, physicians are terrified of going through a PHP, a physician health program. I talk about that in my book. And I actually, that is a precursor to chapter five, because we don't ever want a physician to have to go to a PHP program. And I talk about in the book how they could lose their license. I talk about how a PHP program, if, if you don't agree as a physician, you don't agree with the assessment, you don't have a say in it. And if you don't agree with it and you refuse to follow through the treatment, you maybe want a second opinion, etc. They have the power to take away your license. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they have the power to take away your license because they will not release you back to work. So we have to work really diligently to make sure that our physicians never have to go to a PHP program. Um, And if they're too terrified to do so because PHP programs have a negative connotation, then we have to teach them different practices to help them get active in releasing everything that has been burning them out. And sleeping isn't going to do that. (laughs) Right. So I think I misheard earlier when you were talking about resistance training. You you mean resilience training. Is that correct? Resilience training, yes. Yes, I, I just wanted to clarify that because I think we talked about resistance a couple of times and we both meant resilience training. So I just wanted to clarify that for listeners. But the word resistance is still in my head because I'm wondering what resistance do you see from residents and fellows 
to this work because, you know, one of the things that we know about physicians is that there is a reluctance to talk about mental health and well-being. Yeah. There is a reluctance to talk about the impact of mental and physical fatigue on the body, there is a reluctance to talk about and to process in a very explicit way what it is that you're seeing day in, day out in the ER. And, you know, and I think the general public has become much more aware of that in some of the personal testimonies that physicians Mm -hmm. have given and other clinicians during, you know, the pandemic history, Mm -hmm. where people are seeing incredibly traumatic Scenes and experiences of death and dying that go beyond what they are normally exposed to in the ER. And and we know that, you know, lots of people from other parts of a hospital are working with COVID patients and being exposed to things that they wouldn't necessarily expect to see. So Mm -hmm. very long winded context there. But how much resistance or reluctance do you see in the people that you work with to considering some of these modalities? I would say it's 100%. And I do talk about that in the book as well, because again, as we were just talking about the physician health program, it is such a fear for a physician to be referred to that. So if you can imagine, if you're experiencing some mental fatigue and you're going to your administrator, your CMO, whoever you may be going to as a physician and saying, I need a break. I I really do need, I need a break. Mm -hmm. That is enough evidence to put them through a PHP program. So that is terrifying. They don't want to talk about it. If you look into PHP programs, and again, I have it in my book, it it is not something I personally would ever recommend a physician to go through. And that's why they're scared to talk about their mental health. Because if you can get told you've got to go through a PHP and you can't practice anymore until you've been signed off by a PHP program. Well, PHP programs are often never paid for by insurance companies or by the employer. Uh, And they can cost up to $100,000. You can do a 90-day program and pay $100,000. Can you afford a $100,000 bill? Probably not. So that's another added stress. I mean, I know there may be some physicians that make really good money, but that's absurd. And then, like I talked about before, they have the threat of their license being taken away forever. So there goes their entire career. That is terrifying. Mm -hmm. So I I had this conversation, me having a counseling background. When I first learned about PHPs, I was actually working in surgery. And I was working for a really busy trauma um, hospital, and one of my chief residents came in, and, and you know they were burnt out, of course, and they were just talking about, you know, experiencing some things in the T10 room. So if you've ever had the experience of working in a hospital that's got a T10 room, well, my goodness, you can only imagine what that patient um, is has had happened to them. You've got every specialty in there trying to save this person, for example. So I had heard about my residents saying, you know. One of the attendings had just really had it. I mean, he was like experiencing burnout and just having an emotional wreck. We had a a physician already take his life very recently, and Mm. it, it really just affected a lot of the surgeons, of course. But one in particular who was like, I'm breaking. I am breaking. And he was too afraid to say something to uh, who the supervisor would have been for him, the director, because he didn't want to be put through a PHP program. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, that's great. You've got a dedicated 
treatment plan for you with experts in counseling. You know, I have a counseling background. It's going to be helpful. And then I got educated on the PHP and why physicians are so afraid of it. And I had to look more into it because I don't want to recommend my residents to go do something that could actually jeopardize them. So what are you to do as a physician? You want to get the help, but you're so terrified about what could be done to you. You could be placed into, you know, a non-voluntarily go into a PHP program. So I really do try on the side, so to speak, whenever a physician comes and talks to me, I say, pay out of pocket and go to a counselor. Right. That's really what you should do. That's the safest thing for you to do. If you've really got a fear of having to go through a PHP program, then don't tell your supervisor that you are experiencing certain elements. Go talk to a mental health professional. And if it is something to where you don't feel that you can work through it, then you're going to have to have a conversation with your supervisor. But for the first part that you can do in healing is going directly to a counselor, pay out of pocket, and therefore there's no trace that you went to go see a counselor. So that's the that's the situation in healthcare today that we're working with. We've got lots of uh, physicians that are so afraid that there is a an evidence trail that they've seen help for their well care well being um, mm-hmm. that they're they're doing things in secret, and I I'm part of that. I will tell any physician any resident to go see a counselor and pay for it out of pocket so there's no trail. Yeah. If you if you do really have a fear of what um, the consequences are of telling your supervisor or telling anyone, please go to a counselor and pay for it out of pocket. Don't just sit quietly and deal with it because there are going to be professionals that can help you. Right. So you have talked about your book a few times. Can you just kind of give us a brief description of what the book is about and what it's called and where we can find it? So the book is called Graduate Medical Education. Um, In short, it's about barriers to success in the GME community. So through my 10 years, I found the same common themes, no matter where I was in the country, no matter if I was working in the GME office or if I was working for a specialty. And it didn't matter which specialty I was working for. It seemed there were these common themes. And so I wanted to break down these themes and talk about different strategies that I felt maybe we could start looking into and exploring and seeing if we can get better outcomes. And it really is all about strengthening the foundation of GME and strengthening the residency learning experience and, of course, the treatment and really Mm -hmm. working on our transparency. So transparency with medical candidates, uh, medical school students getting into residency because that's always a hot topic where, where they feel like they have no information. They feel that they have been misled. So we don't ever want any candidates coming into residency off on a negative start. And then it talks about throughout residency and then, of course, post-residency, all about the uh, negotiating for a physician's contract and the whole interviewing process and how to market and brand yourself and your services. So it's kind of wide net in terms of how we can strengthen the community because in, in reality, it has to be broken down because We have to strengthen our whole dynamic with bringing in our candidates. We have to strengthen the dynamics of our administrators. I think it's going to be a shock to people when they read how very little training our own administrators have, even though they are Mm -hmm. responsible, they're working towards the accreditation. And then, of course, we have to talk about just the GME community in general. And that includes ACGME, and that includes match, for example. So it talks about ways that we can improve. And it also showcases what's been going wrong. So in terms, for example, 
there are things that are going wrong in terms of the whole ranking and matching process and how that can be manipulated. There's manipulation within the evaluations for, for trainees. So we've, we've got some things that we can improve on. And I'm just using my opinion based on my experiences on ways that maybe we can strengthen those. So the book can be found on Amazon and it's in Kindle version and it's also the paperback version. And are there lessons that the continuing medical education, continuing professional development community can draw from the landscape that you cover in your book? I think so. I do give a lot of personal stories. I make no mention of names, no mention of institutions, no mention of employers or anybody, because that's not what I'm highlighting. I'm highlighting on what is happening. And so, yes, the lessons of what happens when, when we don't have transparency And unfortunately, we match with candidates that probably aren't the best for what the community needs. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. There's lessons in what happens when we do try to manipulate. There are consequences to that. And I give stories about what I have seen happen. Um, There's consequences to how we treat our residents and what is happening in terms of their health, but in terms of also what is happening in terms of them leaving the profession and what's happening to the community because we've mistreated physicians and now our community is, is going to suffer. And they are suffering because we are um, in dire need of a few specialties right now, right? Internal medicine, uh, psychiatry, family medicine, and, and pediatrics. We're in dire need of those. Oncology too. <laughs> of course, yes. And I, and I hope that those stories spur inspiration for certain members of the communities to kind of go back to the drawing board and say, okay, well, maybe we do need to look at this. We all know that you can manipulate rankings. We all know that you can manipulate, you know, who you bring into an interview. So I talk about that too. You know, we're really in a sensitive time right now because we don't want to discriminate, but yet we want to attract a diverse population, right? I mean, the community needs diverse physicians. That's only what's fair. But in doing so, you might alienate other parties. And I, and I do talk about those experiences. So we got to kind of go back to the drawing board. You know, we see pictures during the heiress application and they say, okay, you know, we need a black person in, in our program. Great. I can see in the picture that he's black. Or you know what? We need a female in our program. Oh, great. I know that they're female. I can see the photo. So that's what, well, that's what's happening. And is that the right thing to do? I mean, the community needs the best physician. So we need diversity, but we also need the the right physician for the community's needs. And I focus on that kind of heavily because you can't just meet a quota. You have to meet what your physician's needs. And and I do put the blame also on match. You know, I remember working with a program, the community needed a specific physician and they were so afraid of not matching and therefore not getting that physician. And the, the program director is like, we need a damn physician in this community. I can't risk not having a physician because of the match rules. He did manipulate. He had to manipulate because the community needed a type of physician. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The whole thing is in good intentions. However, your community needs have to come first. So if you know, you know you need a physician, you know you need to match, you've got to do what you've got to do because if the community goes without a physician, especially in specialty physicians, so they're a lot rarer to recruit for, you can't punish your, your community. I'm sorry, match, but you can't expect a physician to do that. 
And people can read about that in your book. Where can listeners find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. If they just type in Brenda Thompson, I'm sure there's a lot, but Brenda Thompson, Chicago, and then you'll see my, my tag. It's Jamie expert. And I'm also on Twitter, which is medical underscore education. So yeah, that's where they can find me. (laughs) And we'll make sure to put that information in the show notes so that people can have access to that Thank you so much for your time, Brenda. Really appreciate you taking time to talk to us on Right Medicine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope your audience learns a few things from this conversation. Burnout has been one of the recurring topics of this podcast over the last year. Unsurprisingly, as it's been a topic on the radar of most health professionals for, well, let's just say decades. I think I've assumed that burnout stems from experiences accrued in the context of clinical work after becoming a physician. But Brenda suggests that the data point to experiences at medical school, sexual harassment, physical abuse, drug and alcohol use that contribute to burnout and trauma before physicians have really hit the ground. Many physicians and probably other health professionals start their careers under-supported to meet the emotional and personal challenges they encounter as clinicians, hence the overuse of partial hospitalization programs. Brenda suggests that those of us in the business of education have to do better in supporting early career physicians and other health professionals manage fatigue, stress and burnout. For Brenda, A lot of that support focuses on strategies that encourage emotional release alongside strategies that build resilience. You can learn more about these strategies as well as the other topics that we discussed in Brenda's book on graduate medical education. I'll make sure to include a link in the show notes. As ever, thanks for spending time with me and Brenda. I always want to know what you think. You can email me or write a podcast review. And if you haven't yet joined the Right Medicine community, there's a link in the show notes. As a thank you, you'll receive downloadable bonus content from season one of the show. Until next time, I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine, wishing you and yours the happiest and warmest of the holiday season. Go gently.